Welcome to The Great Reset, a podcast from the World Economic Forum that looks at how we can build a cleaner, fairer, smarter world after COVID-19. As much of the world goes back to school and work after the summer, should we be more or less optimistic about how well we can recover from the pandemic? I would have thought that by this time we would know enough because it would be a thing of the past. Unfortunately, it is not. We are right in the middle of it and it may get worse. OECD Chief Angel Gurria was one of the speakers at this week's Great Reset Dialogue, where experts from around the world discussed how businesses can build back. The question is how do we achieve resilience in a new global environment, including a pandemic-prone global environment? And as businesses struggle to survive and make themselves ready for any future health or economic shocks, will they have any inclination to shift their focus to issues such as the climate crisis and better serving the wider community? The heads of the New York Stock Exchange and Bank of America say, actually, Yes. During the months of March and April, as the pandemic was spreading, we saw immediate action from so many companies to change their businesses to be part of the solution. That's a stakeholder mentality. I'm Robin Pomeroy, digital editor at the World Economic Forum. Please subscribe, just search The Great Reset on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And please take a moment to rate the show. After the global crisis, a global opportunity. This is The Great Reset from the World Economic Forum. Welcome to The Great Reset, the podcast where, among other things, we'll be covering highlights from the World Economic Forum's Great Reset Dialogues, which will be held fortnightly from now until December. Those are conversations between global experts looking at various aspects of the Forum's Great Reset initiative. And if you want to know more about that, please check out previous episodes of this podcast. So every fortnight, you'll be able to hear and indeed watch the whole of the online discussions. You can find links to those on our website, weform.org. But here on the podcast, we're giving you just a flavour of them. This week's dialogue had as its theme, Building Back Business. The dialogue happened on the same day that the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development published its estimate for the economic growth during the second quarter of this year. The head of the OECD, Angel Gurria, said the statistics did not make for cheerful reading. Today we are putting out the numbers for the second quarter for the OECD it's almost 10% contraction, unprecedented. And of course, you go all the way from uh, the best ones, uh, Japan, uh, only only minus 7.8% to the UK, which is minus 20%. So basically, the second quarter is very, very tough. So when you're talking about V's and when you're talking about U's and L's, we're really talking about pretty dire situation and second the second wave phenomenon happening in different ways in different intensities in a number of countries and therefore what i would say is uh well coming to our worst nightmare korea's mention of u's and l's refers to the shape of lines on a graph charting economic performance and he went on to say that if people think they're seeing a v-shaped recovery they'll be in for a disappointment the oecd chief went on to talk about how long countries should and how long they could sustain the hugely costly economic support packages that many countries brought in place to avoid a total economic collapse the question is uh, how big should the measures be, how long should they stay? Germany announced that they're going to keep the unemployment support for the whole of 2021. The whole discussion in the United States about the new stimulus package is how long and then how much. 
do they go into the continuation or whether they go at all into the continuation of the support that they gave before. Because that is going to define the impact, whether those support measures continue to be maintained or not, or whether they are reduced or not, and when to withdraw them. Remember the big mistake we made in 2008-2009, we withdrew the stimulus too fast, we went into austerity too fast, and what happened is we went into two further downturns of the world economy after that because we were too fast. We should not make the same mistake this time. Lives against livelihoods is a totally false dilemma. What you should do, of course, is throw everything you got, including the kitchen sink, at the virus. Beat the virus, control the virus, which is what is not happening now. Uh, and of course, that has a cost, but the cost of not doing that is much greater. And then what we're seeing right now is that because we did not do the first part well enough, we are now paying a very, very expensive price in terms of unemployment, in terms of SMEs, some sectors like tourism, what can I say about that? When you're, you're, you're thinking about what to do, the first thing is, of course, you throw everything you got at the uh, situation of well, the, the people who are sick, you try to save lives. But at the same time, you are dealing with almost the next day it happened that you were dealing with the consequences. The consequences being massive, tens of millions of unemployed happening almost instantaneously, talking about the shape of the recovery. Very fast down, predictably some recovery. Obviously, the moment you normalize, quote unquote, not only China, but the rest of the countries, open some of the sectors, we were bound to have better numbers, but the question is, it will be a truncated second part of the V. There go into more like a, uh, into the U shape. And the question is, how long does the bottom line of the U will last? Why? Because once you get the, let's say, the stability that the quote-unquote reopening or normalization will bring to certain sectors, then you will see the hard numbers about how many millions and millions of people actually lost the jobs, do not have a job, and then you will not be able, or most countries, they're not Germany, most countries will not be able to continue to support, or they will have to have a very tough calculation in terms of how they deal with the debt situation in their own countries, taking into account the very low interest rates, et cetera, or clearly the debt to GDP consequences that will happen with a shrinking GDP, and a growing debt, you will have a ratio that is going to be biting on, on the two sides. We are right in the middle of it, and it may get worse. Angel Gurria of the OECD was talking at the World Economic Forum's Great Reset Dialogue on Building Back Business. Brian Moynihan runs Bank of America, one of the world's biggest financial companies. He addressed a central part of the Great Reset, stakeholder capitalism. The Klaus he mentions in this clip is Klaus Schwab, founder and executive chairman of the World Economic Forum, who for 50 years of the organization's existence has been calling for companies to work for all their stakeholders. So in addition to serving shareholders, they should also think about their employees, their customers, the wider society and the environment. Moynihan says... 
measuring companies' progress towards the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, the STGs, which could potentially become mandatory in some places, would reward companies for doing good. The discussion of build back better, building back better or uh, a better recovery, a recovery that's uh, more uniform and has in it the, the balance between people and uh, environment and profit for shareholders, stakeholder capitalism, what Klaus has been talking to us all for 50 years. This is the best time because in the end of the day, you know, we need to be relentless about this idea. If we believe the SDGs are important, which we have all said we do, and if we believe we have to make progress, and we believe that the investor community is very focused on companies who not only do well for their shareholders, but do well for their stakeholders, there's not a better time to make sure that we have the metrics to measure that success so that companies are making progress can be recognized and rewarded. And that's why the metrics are important. These are the stakeholder capitalism metrics at the end of the day, and they define what success should be, and they defined uh, progress in the SDGs, and there isn't a better time to do it, especially now when you add to it the amount of fiscal stimulus can help us accelerate the move faster on top of everything else. Stacey Cunningham, president of the New York Stock Exchange, said that while corporate America might be lagging other parts of the world in realising the importance of companies reporting their ESG, their performance on environmental, social and governance issues, change is happening. Yeah, absolutely. That change is definitely coming. And what we're seeing, and just to just take a step back to see what we talk about, what we saw in the first half of the year and how people reacted, companies were focused on stakeholders. During the, the months of March and April, as the pandemic was spreading, we saw immediate action from so many companies across sectors to change their businesses to be part of the solution. That's a stakeholder mentality that they weren't just focused on their bottom line. So I think you really do see that companies believe in the power of, of focusing on stakeholders. In the US, I think the investment community is lagging a little bit the rest of the world on focusing on ESG. They're catching up and they're, they're, definitely, they're definitely heading in that direction. But what we're hearing from many CEOs is that they are so focused on it because their employees and their customers are, are focused on it. And so they're already making those changes even as their investors are, are catching up. I do think it's a delicate balance. And one thing we need to keep in mind as we put requirements onto companies that we don't end up shifting the balance between the benefits of being a public company versus a private company. And so as companies are focused on these things, there's a cost associated with, with it. And so many companies might choose to stay private just to put off the cost of, of handling all the disclosures associated with being a public company. And so one of the things that we are focused on is, is making sure that it doesn't become too much of a burden, that there's an easy and consistent metric system that can be used, that it doesn't drive companies to staying private. Because if companies stay private, investors lose access to those opportunities. And that's not something we want to see happen. Stacy Cunningham, president of the New York Stock Exchange. You're listening to The Great Reset with me, Robin Pomeroy. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate us. And also check out our sister podcast, World vs. Virus, where since the start of the pandemic, we've been speaking to economists, to business leaders, scientists, policymakers, campaigners, and just fascinating people to try to make sense of the coronavirus crisis and look at ways we can beat it. This, for example, was IMF chief economist Gita Gopinath. We described the 2020 crisis as the great lockdown. Just historical numbers, incredible. And former UK Foreign Secretary David Miliband. This disease can't be allowed to run riot until it overwhelms an already weak health system. Psychologist and podcaster 
Adam Grant. Unfortunately, there are some people who are going to face post-traumatic stress. The encouraging news is over half of people report post-traumatic growth. You can hear all those interviews and many more. Just search for World vs. Virus wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to The Great Reset, where we're listening in on The Great Reset dialogue, looking at building back business. Tarman Shanmugaratnam is an economist and senior minister at the Prime Minister's Office of Singapore. He said the pandemic, coming as it had during a time of already heightened trade tensions, would result in inevitable changes to the globalised supply chains that businesses have become used to. But, he said, sudden disruptions could be risky, particularly for small and medium-sized companies. The question is, how do we achieve resilience in a new global environment, including a pandemic-prone global environment, as well as growth? How do we avoid a sharp trade-off between resilience and growth? And I think first we have to avoid silver bullet type solutions, avoid extreme solutions, We know that the hyper-efficient, hyper-specialized, hyper-globalized system of supply chains doesn't achieve resilience and uh, will have to be modified. And one way of thinking about it, one way of thinking about that trade-off between resilience and growth and how we can minimize it, is to think of efficiency in more dynamic terms. In other words, not just static efficiency, where the most uh, just-in-time model of supply chains can deliver very highly efficient systems, But think of efficiency in the dynamic and more long-term sense, where we are bound to encounter shocks, be it pandemics or other shocks, and you want a a system that's resilient or or robust across scenarios. So we think of it in terms of dynamic efficiency. Some of today's hyper-efficient supply chains will have to be modified. But at the same time, we've got to avoid thinking that onshoring, nearshoring, and much shorter global supply chains are the solutions. Um, The best studies... Uh, show that, in fact, they're not resilient. Uh, Onshoring is not a resilient uh, strategy. And and quite obviously, neither is it optimal for growth. Uh, It's also costly for consumers. Uh, Consumers, by the way, are going to remain uh, all over the world concerned about value for money. Onshoring and nearshoring is a a tempting proposition. It tends to get bandied around a lot, but it's uh, it's neither resilient, uh, nor is it growth friendly, nor is it friendly in terms of inclusive growth, in terms of generating jobs. We have to think of resilience, therefore, first in terms of how we modify systems that may have been hyper-specialized and hyper-efficient, and it still has to remain about openness. We do have to retain at the core of it all the principle of diversification because diversification through global trade and global sourcing is in fact a source of resilience and it's a source of growth. Well beyond the issue of location, we have to think more fundamentally as to what a resilient global supply chain means. And it's not just about location, it's basically about risk management capabilities, which were probably not given sufficient attention in in a whole range of industries and now have to be. And what it means is first being able to plan your production and your supply chains so that you can flex production across plants, across sites at short notice, building redundancy, both redundancy with regard to supplier networks as well as uh, transportation networks. It means inventories. It does mean increasing intelligent uh, stockpiling, particularly for critical inputs. And it means basically the operational capacity to respond quickly to shocks and recover. It's an under 
emphasized trait of the most successful global companies, risk management capability, ability to deal with shocks, including unanticipated shocks. It means that this next phase of globalization will require a deeper form of globalization that involves regulatory harmonization. Globalization can't be about deregulation. This next phase has to be about this deeper form of globalization that involves regulatory harmonization on everything from digital rules, cross-border data flow, as well as the, the rules for the green economy, rules as well as peer pressure, and sometimes more than peer pressure, so that everyone plays by the same rules. Having the same rules across borders helps SMEs the most. We need that simplicity and we need that lack of friction across borders in order to preserve an SME economy globally. Singapore's Tarman Shanmugaratnam on the risks to SMEs, that's small and medium-sized enterprises. And a couple of other terms he mentioned there, onshoring and nearshoring, that's basically the reversal of offshoring, where companies have their products manufactured in a foreign country. Onshoring means bringing the manufacturing back home, and nearshoring, bring it back to a country closer to home. You can hear or watch all the speakers at this week's Reset Dialogue, including journalist Li Xin, Vice President of Kaishin Media, with her insight of how China is recovering from the pandemic. So if you're walking the streets of Beijing or Shanghai, you don't see that many people wear masks. Restaurants are busy. Movie theatres are opened. Like everywhere else, you can see the speed up of digitalization. Even before the virus, 20% of retail took place online, and now it's already 25%. You can find links to the whole Reset Dialogue on our website, we Org, where you can find lots more material on The Great Reset. Please subscribe to the podcast to receive it regularly and check out our sister podcast, World vs. Virus, and take a moment, if you would, to rate them wherever it is you get your podcasts. The Great Reset will be back next week with an interview with Oxford University economist John Kay, co-author of a new book called Greed is Dead. We have a problem of business legitimacy. People have a very negative attitude towards large businesses. It's time for a turning of the intellectual tide. You can follow all our content on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, YouTube, and on Twitter using the handle at WEF. Thanks to Gareth Nolan for help producing this episode. For now, from me, Robin Pomeroy, goodbye. <laughs>